I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. The pros and cons of actual jumpers for goalposts. The goal-scoring word crisis. The uncertain future of your shit. Ah. The theory behind a perfect knee slide celebration. The cliches quiz scandals of 2020. The psychological challenges of Office 5 aside, the most Champions league group possible, how to get your Soccer Saturday roving reporter name, the art of footballing small talk, the truth behind that generic crowd noise, why 90% of football pundits are wearing those shoes, and the true meaning of For Me Clive from the man himself. Brought to your ears in 2020 by The Athletic, this is the very best of football cliches. All the way back in episode two, James McNicholas and Charlie Eccleshare join me to decide, once and for all, what does make the most efficient goalposts for a park kickabout. Now, park football, the, the, the inherent issue with park football where there aren't any goals yeah. is what do you use for goalposts? And, you know, years of testing led me to think that upturned mountain bikes were the way to go. Sure. I mean, the cliche is jumpers for goalposts, but jumpers are rubbish. Yeah, they are crap. too wide have no height and they are essentially movable as the game goes on. What, so an upturned bike, are we all agree? Can you get a rebound off an upturned bike? You can. quite. If you hit it plumb against the That's tire, you're getting good good rebounding. Yeah, this was always my problem with like park football and it probably says a lot about my personality but I just, it was so unstructured and like, there weren't proper goals and you'd have too many people on the pitch and this is why I still play 11 aside now. I agree. Jumpers is not actually a good solution, is it? <laughs> yeah. Because A, those jumpers... You know, you don't want them on the mud, mm. I'm thinking, from a sartorial perspective. <laughs> Second of all, you don't get a rebound of them. You can't go inside, in, in off the post. If you've got access to a cricket stump, surely that is the solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is, um, I, I do remember that being used. It is quite, yeah, middle class. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I had access to, I, I admit, I had access to cricket, cricket stumps. <laughs> and I had a football in the playground. I've had a charmed yeah. life. My, my issue, I think, Your my, silver spoon. Yeah, no. <laughs> my fundamental issue with jumpers is, is any errant sleeves lead to kind of VAR levels of discussion. Well, I was going to say maybe that was the it was like created such drama. Yeah. Hitting a sleeve is posting in, I guess. That, that you get that a lot with the crossbar as well, don't mm. you? Like, you know, is is that in? Oh or yeah, is it high? yeah. Almost impossible to say. Jack Lang speaks four languages. Michael Cox speaks only one. Tactics. They join me to explore the vocabulary of goal scoring. Let's get stuck into the language of goal scoring. This is what we're here for. Um, I put it to you that the language of goal scoring is a kind of case of supply and demand, but there are, there are some quirks to be explored here because there are so many words to describe the act of goal scoring because there are so many goals and so many ways of reporting on football, so we need so many words for it. But there are not enough words for goals. We, we have goals and sometimes we call them strikes, which is a terrible word, but we have no other way of describing goals. Uh, equally, there are no words for goal scorers, marksman, hitman, goal getter. Do we have a problem here? Do we have a shortage of words in these scenarios? 
Yeah, in my writing, I've often found myself really slaloming through the English language to find different ways of yeah, essentially saying someone has scored a lot of goals in a given season. And you end up performing acrobatics, really, which suggests to me that it, it's, a simple, it's a simple shortage. We need to get down the word mines again, <laughs> dig out three or four more for each of those, you know, for the noun and for the adjective. Yeah, I agree. I once used the phrase goal poaching to describe, this was in a game I was playing yeah, in, yeah. So a teammate scored and I said, oh, lovely goal poaching. And he he thought that I was accusing him of nicking someone else's goal, which I, did, I didn't. I know it can be used in that context, but I didn't mean that. I just meant, you know, he was being a bit of a Javier Hernandez sniffing around the goal. Yeah. He was genuinely quite annoyed by that. I think <laughs> as with most other areas of football, it gets quite old fashioned. I mean, would you with a straight face use onion bag or plundering, which I believe is a piracy term? <laughs> Definitely not onion bag. No. I think that's that's beyond the pale plundering there's a certain type of of scoring that i could just about imagine using plundering for so which Gerd is Mullery. yeah kind of stony faced slightly grim <laughs> uh, joyless accumulation <laughs> of goals gerd muller would be a very good example of that and I, I would just about take plundering for that because it's kind of it's a removal of joy he, mm. he's not getting anything from it he's just plundering away a very, very in- important point here, I, and I'm seeing people getting this wrong all over the place. Uh, getting in on the act. What, what, what would you say? What would you say is the threshold for getting in on the act? Five. Has to be a fifth goal, I think. Fifth. I would accept a fourth goal, provided it was someone you would have expected to score before that. So the striker of the team scoring the fourth after three defenders had yeah. scored the first three. I could just about take that. Yeah. I mean, you're the you're, I would, the, you're the oracle. I would say something like Nicholas Otamendi getting the fourth or fifth in a rampant home win for Man City is getting in on the edge. I think I think it has to be a unfashionable goal scorer, an unlikely yeah. goal scorer. Actually, I, I take it back. Four is fine because I think the ultimate example is um, when Dosena scored the fourth for Liverpool. Yeah against Manchester United in a 4-1 win. Right. That was very much getting in in the act. Because yeah. I've never heard of him before or since, so that was ultimate. <laughs> it's very important. I think getting in the act, the threshold is pretty much the same as a route. People ask me this the other day, is when, does, when, does a, when does a simple win become a route? I say it's probably four. Four is the magic number here. I'm glad we sorted this out because it's very important. Is, is 4-1 a route? I think it's still just about a route, but the, the line between 4-1 and 4-2, 4-2 doesn't feel right. 4-2 is not a route. 4-2 is you're into comprehensive or emphatic win territory. But is route then about margin rather than... Route is about manner and margin. But you could come down, you could come back from 1-0 down to route a team, I think, to win 4-1. But I'd say margin would have to be at least three and total goals at least four. Well, in teletext parlance, if a, if a team scored five, they'd often say five-star Arsenal. Yeah. But sometimes they said four-star Arsenal when they scored four, which just sounds like a criticism to me. <laughs> yeah, it's five-star, joy of six, yeah. hit for six. Seventh heaven. heaven. Eight. Eight doesn't have one because the newspapers, they sort of trialed GR hyphen eight for a bit. (laughs) So eight is still up for grabs. Cloud nine. (laughs) And obviously no one ever scores 10. So that's no one ever needs to get. So that's the hierarchy. It's very, again, it's, there are hard and fast rules for this. Episode five explored all the ways we follow football. And it was the scene for the world premiere of every football league goals roundup ever. 
I feel like one form of football highlights which is immune from that, even if you do know the scores, it doesn't actually ruin the enjoyment, is the the, fo- the art of the Football League goals roundup, which good match that they doesn't have that anymore because they do every game in full. So you don't have sort of Geraldton stats or yeah. talking over goals in a really sort of casual conversational way. But you still get it for the Football League, I think it's a quest on, on, on a Saturday evening. Still haven't watched it, but I, I should do because I really like Football League goals roundups. And in particular, I really like the tone of voice that they use. Um, I tweeted about this the other day and I actually got some angry guys who used to narrate Football League Extra back in the 90s saying, you you think it's easy, do you? I said, no, I honestly don't. But this is what I've noticed about Football League goal roundup. So one quiet, boring day recently, I decided to try and record my own version of every Football League goals roundup ever. Team X went into this game with just one win in their last 13. And when Team Y took the lead inside four minutes at Stadium Z, the home fans were probably starting to fear the worst. But Striker A had other ideas, and this game turned on its head in the space of five minutes midway through the second half. First, a smart finish from the edge of the box brought Team X level, and he repeated the trick on the hour mark to bring his tally for the season to 22. By now, Team X were in the mood, and although Striker A squandered a gilt-edged chance to complete his hat-trick, on-loan Dutchman winger B made it three with a curling effort from long range. Team Y's misery was compounded in stoppage time when midfielder C's late challenge on fullback D saw them reduced to ten men. An afternoon to forget for manager E's men then, but Team X will hope they have finally turned a corner under caretaker boss manager F. To me, football league goals roundups, they're like poetry. You can rely on that kind of undulating tone. Um, what, what's your favourite bit of every football league goals roundup ever, Charlie? Well, I, as, as I was hearing that, I could perfectly envision it a sort of muddy-ish pitch, <laughs> light rain falling. And I could see the scoreline kind of popping up at the bottom. And, and that's when you, you feel safe. So, ah, okay. like we, You know we, you're in good hands. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. we we got through it and the right result happened any glaring emissions there Harriet no I can't think of any but I just like the empathy as well for because <laughs> there's so many goals in football league yeah so it can go you know it really does go from one end to the other and the, the empathy in, in the voice of the, of the voiceover is just wonderful it's almost like yeah we know we're with you on this no that's just what I'm saying when when, when they when I sort of slightly annoyed these guys who'd done it as a, as a profession in the past, what I should have said was, you know, it's not like co-commentary, which is, to me, kind of designed to annoy you. There's something always about co-commentary that will get your back up. But football these goal transfers, as you say, they're not very judgmental. They're very inclusive and, and they will reflect the reality of the game without making you feel terrible about what just happened. So to everyone who's ever done a Football League Goal Roundup, you have my eternal respect and I would like to put that on record. For episode six, The Art of Football Commentary, Charlie and David Walker weighed up the co-commentary legacy of Andy Gray and his little made-up conversations while I had one very important question for Clive Tilsley. But you know, someone I think about a lot with really great commentaries is Andy Gray. Yeah. And I know Gray you know not to everyone's taste given everything that happened but sure. as a commentator in that period he was brilliant mm. I mean he, he got such a good bat and maybe by the end it was over the top and became a bit of a self-parody but he was like he was so enthusiastic he loved like good attacking football yeah. and like I think of him with a lot of like clips in my head he also loved little made up conversations yes, between strikers exactly, and goalkeepers yeah. um, and, and he, he said he looks he looks across and he says I'm gonna hit this and he does and he hits it I, I love the really specific <laughs> ones so when it'll be like and he just says to his mate win us the Capital One Cup 2008 or something like that <laughs> there was a uh, back in the day when face, Facebook groups were a thing there was a Facebook group set up purely for his imaginary conversations and it was hard to tell which ones were the parodies and which ones are the real 
superhero ones. My favourite ones were when he set up this kind of fictional battle of wits between a goalkeeper and a striker from the goalkeeper's perspective. And it was basically, the goalkeeper stood up there and he says, go on, son, beat me. And he doesn't. <laughs> and, it, and it was just like, it, and it, was, it was always phrased as a question and then, and then the payoff. And uh, yeah, I kind of miss that. One of the it's a shame he, that he, you know, he did what he did. Well, he's still working. Yeah. <laughs> to, to all our listeners in the Middle East. Um, but one of the Does reasons- he do commentary though? I think he's no, more of a he's very uh, keys much, and he's, he's retired to the studio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the comfortable surrounds of the studio. Mm. Um, but one of the reasons he's so good is because he's Scottish. Yeah, yeah. Scottish people are, have got excellent broadcast voices yeah, across yeah. the board Emphatic, in all mediums. kind of guttural, visceral. Yeah. It does help. I mean, I don't want to pigeonhole it. Football takes a lot from wider society. It takes lots of phrases. We've been talking about this before. And it says it steals phrases from other eras and other walks of life. But it doesn't give much back, football. But one <laughs> phrase it does give back is, for me, Clive. <laughs> now, I think I feel like it's moved out of the realm of football now because it essentially... To me, for me, Clive basically means I have this opinion which I'm not entirely sure about, but I'd like to qualify that it is my opinion and then I'm putting it to you. That's essentially all those I three... I think it's not for me, Clive, isn't it? Is it more, more, not more of a negative be, no, thing? Maybe, I th- maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I think it's a uh, not for me, Clive. Fancy a cup of tea, not for me, Clive. Not for me, Clive. How does that no. feel? How do you feel? You're you, you essentially now well, immortalised. I, I suppose the origin of it is sitting next to somebody who's played the game that I would love to have been able to play, but couldn't. I mean, that's the role of the co-commentator. The, the co-commentator is to go down there, yeah. have a career, and come back and tell the rest of us what it's like, how you miss an open goal, uh, how how you manage to execute a bicycle kick, to give us an overview. But they, only they can actually tell us, sitting next to somebody, it's probably Andy Townsend who said it mm-hmm. most often. Yeah, it's It's as a result of me saying... He really should have scored or whatever. And him saying, shut up, what do you know? <laughs> Not for me, Clive, is basically, what? Oh boy, how many times have you played for England? I think that's essentially what Not For Me, Clive is. Episode eight was all about the glorious sounds of football. Goals going in off the woodwork, the satisfying clap of goalkeeper gloves, and the uncertain future for the wonderful goal kick tradition that is your shit ah. But uh, the general consensus was that the best sound in football is the ball going in off the crossbar or the post or even both or at least two of the three angles of the goal anyway uh, I feel like the the peak of this genre is Darren Anderton versus Sweden in 1995 what is it about the sound of woodwork I mean it's not wood it's not wood anymore of course but what is it, the sound of aluminium it's probably linked to the fact that you know how satisfying it feels as yeah. well if you've yeah. ever done it. Yeah. Like it's there is just an inherently satisfying quality to that noise. Do you not think, Harriet, that you in isolation the sound isn't actually that good? You, you, you need the pictures to go with it. I mean, I'm defeating the kind point of, of the whole point of yeah. this. <laughs> no, I'm just putting it out there. Devil's advocate. Do you need? Does, is it an all? Is it an all things encompassing thing? You need the sound to go with the. It's a very visceral thing seeing the ball going off the woodwork, isn't it? It's a yeah, wonderful thing. I think you kind of need all your senses to enjoy mm. it to the max. Mm. So when it because the anticipation as well when you can see how close the shot's going to be yeah. and you don't know whether it's going to hit the post and or Chris Bar and come back out. Yeah. Um, so I think. 
think it's a yeah to be to be enjoyed holistically oh nice mike b says the most satisfying noise is the sound of the ball in a keeper's gloves as they catch across in the warm-up only he specifies um there is something satisfying about an adhesive goalie glove catching ball isn't there look it's my palm haven't i so what the the listeners obviously can't see right now is that you have actually brought a football in and a pair of goalkeeper gloves. The most disgusting goalie gloves in the living history of society. I thought shin pads were bad and now I've realised just how bad these goalie gloves are. Um, I'm going to get rid of them as soon as I can after this podcast. I defy anyone though to to put a pair of goalie gloves on and not clap them Oh yeah! Immediately, oh, that shit. sound of the of your palms clapping together whilst in gloves is the sound. I should have done that. I should have done that. But let's do that. Sorry. Put them on. Oh, Get them back on. Again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Another niche one. Sam says the sound of studs walking on concrete or whatever the floor of the tunnel is made of is a lovely sound. I'm unsure about this. It's a bit too metallic for my tastes. Yeah, I mean, when when I read that, I could hear it. And I thought, actually, that is quite a nice noise. Yeah. Another one for me is uh, when the goalies are cleaning their boots, well, trying to clean their boots, where they hit their Don't studs like it on the post. Against the post, yeah. yeah. I See, I don't... I'm not, a, I'm not a massive fan, but I'm just... You can... Some some of them really go for it, don't yeah, they, as well? Yeah. Some of them are a bit half-hearted about getting the mud off their boots. How important do you think that is? Getting not, the mud off your boots. Not very. I think it. I think it's a psychological thing. It's, yeah. it's little habits. It's like cricketers as well, where they shuffle games. in, shuffle in their crease. Mm. Goalkeepers like to clap. Yeah. They like to, <laughs> they like to slam their studs against the post, um, and they like to jump up and touch the crossbar as well. So I, I put it to you that the sound of studs on on concrete is slightly more satisfying. Uh, with moulded studs yes. than the metal studs. The slight there muffling. Are, there are yeah. more of them, so mm. they make more of a, like... A <laughs> I completely agree that you need the slight muffle of a moulded stud because, to me, I associate the sound of metal studs on, on a hard surface is walking back from football after you've just lost yeah. and you, you were so annoyed you can't even be bothered to put your trainers back on. And it's, and <laughs> after a while you think, oh, I've still got my boots on and now I'm getting on the tube and now I'm on the tube on my boots and people look at me and people look behind them because they think you're someone wearing stilettos <laughs> and, they, and then they realise you're just someone in full kit. You're, you are a full kit wanker on the tube. Um, there are only so many settings that you can wear football boots and as we have just discovered, only so many settings that you should wear really disgusting goalkeeper gloves. I want to talk about derogatory football chants and I don't mean heinously awful ones to individuals I mean playful ones that are clearly designed just to mock teams in general and the most fascinating example of this genre is and I won't muck around here it's your shit ah which is only obviously used at goal kick scenarios and so if anyone who's been supporting football from under a rock for all this time let's play your shit ah in all its glory There are so many good things about that. There, there, a couple of 
the, the first thing you have to be quite careful when you begin the ramp up <laughs> to the your shit air because if, don't do it while he's sort of swigging from yeah, a water bottle yeah, if, yeah exactly if Ben Foster is in goal and you, you know he's going to walk to the other side of the six yard box you need to wait because otherwise they're right at the top of their voice mm. there's just nowhere else for them to there's really really straining and, oh. breathing issues there as well yeah, got, yeah. you know take the sneak the sneak breaths and you have yeah. to yeah yeah and then after the your shit air there's the people it sort of morphs into this, this sort of distant ah, ah, ah. It's lovely, isn't it? It's, it's and it almost sounds like a not an ah, it ends up sounding like a ha ha ha, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, like a mocking yeah. sound. But he hasn't done anything wrong. He was to do his done his take a goal kick. So that that particular kick was from Fulham, which who are demonstrably a southern club. It emerges that your shit ah is actually a geographical thing. Now up north or at least in Yorkshire, and maybe this is just a specifically Leeds thing, they chant something rather different. So I'm just trying to... (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't work down south, would it? No, I I mean, bastard by definition sounds better in in a northern context. But the crucial thing here is the number of difference of syllables. Your shit, ah, that's three syllables, assuming no variances at the end. You shit bastard ah is five. Is that uh, you shit bastard ah? That's five syllables. You are you are sixty six percent more syllables up north for when someone takes a goal kick. Theories, theories. It is nastier as well, isn't it? It is nastier because isn't it? the the your shit ah is like you are a bit shit. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. yeah. But this one, you, you shit you bastard. specifically <laughs> yeah. are shit at football and a bastard. <laughs> I think it's just a bit much. But it's more satisfying. I like it. I might try and start, <laughs> bring, start it, it. bring it down south. Or gentrify it. <laughs> Poor old Watford. Poor old Ben Foster. Presumably you're not going to do it at your own goalkeeper. Once, it hits, if, once it hits Craven Cottage, you know, it's over. Is this a dying art with I, the new goal kick rule? A very serious point. I mean... Over, obviously, over the last maybe five, six, seven years, we're seeing the culture shift for goal kicks. They're being sort of taken short. And and that was the, the harbinger of doom for your shit hour or, or its variants. And then, of course, start of this season, you were allowed to take goal kicks incredibly short. And football fans are being denied their, their one pleasure because your shit hour is completely separate from the result. It doesn't matter if you're 5-0 down. It doesn't matter if you're 5-0 up. It doesn't matter if it's the start of the game or the end of the game. That goalkeeper, that goalkeeper is always shit at. And I feel like it's a pleasure that's being denied football fans. And you don't see the ticket prices coming down, do you? <laughs> you don't. You certainly don't. I, I think the way that we could get around this is that um, in lieu of there being sufficiently long goal kicks, what there is now increasingly is the back pass to the goalkeeper who's comfortable with the ball at his feet being... <laughs> Pressed by Robert, yeah. Roberto Firmino or Sadio Mane or someone, yeah, yeah. and that sort of, especially if they've had a little dodgy moment earlier in the game, there yeah, is a yeah. sort of oh, <laughs> nine times out of ten he'll just sidestep it and pass it to the yeah, fullback. Yeah. But that you could you could insert the your shit ah in that space. As lockdown took hold back in March, the cliches pod developed a virus of its own, an acute case of Premier League years fever, which took us all the way back to 1998-99. Is it? <laughs> September, this, this is great news. Um, just listen, listen to this. Incredible news of B-Sky B's bid to take over Manchester United. Okay, good. B's going to be maybe taking over Man United. But what else happened in September? <laughs> and after months of controversy, Viagra was made available by prescription on the NHS. 
that's all that happened in September. Viagra being available on the NHS. Not all that happened, Adam, because here's Pat Rafter, <laughs> a man who knows a thing or two oh. about how to volley, winning the it's US Open. <laughs> I suppose this is a good point. Like crowbar it in. Yeah, I think this is a good point to point out that you know, they don't seek in from the news into the football with puns. This is a massive urban myth. They don't kind of relate the news to the football in any way, and it's never happened in any episode of Premier League years because I've watched is that them all and made th- How do you sure. mean, like, what, that's what people think? You, loads of people think they do. You know, like, Viagra was available in the NHS, and Man United were on the up as well. Uh-huh. It, it just does not happen. <laughs> that absolutely does not happen. I, I, it's so Very important that, that we uh, bust that Yeah. Myth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're closing in on another classic slice of John Gregory after he joins Paul Merson for his unveiling at Villa Oh, Park. yeah. Um, this was really, this really weird. In, uh, here we go. Uh, one or two problems off the field at his, at his current club, or should I say at Middlesbrough, but um, uh, we've got one or two players that like dressing up in women's clothing and having <laughs> <laughs> their backside spanked around again, but uh, <laughs> I think he'll fit in quite well to be <laughs> Oh, this is nice. This is John Hudson oh, yeah. being welcomed to Wimbledon by having his clothes burned and thrown out the training ground window. I know. Th- this looks... is one of those where you're like, God, I'm so glad I'm not there. received a slightly more dignified arrival. <laughs> I like that dig from George Carnu's Thompson. Carnu's slightly more slightly dignified, more dignified, dignified arrival, arrival at Arsenal. And here's Ron yes! Atkinson. Also, Ron Atkinson takes sitting so long in the wrong dugout. So he's there now. Charlie, talk us through it. Dale doesn't realise. Then a little p- a polite steward steps in and goes, Ron, yeah. Ron, Fabian Caballero yeah. laughing at him. Fabian Caballero and Nelson Vivas. And then he has to use Nelson Vivas as a ladder. <laughs> oh, he took it well though, didn't he? Fair play to him. Episode 11 was all about the art of the goal celebration, and in particular, the criteria for the picture-perfect Premier League knee slide. James, what, what would you consider to be the textbook knee slide? What are, what are, the, what are the criteria you need to satisfy here? I think conditions are an important part of it. I mean, you know, we know elite pitchers get watered, but a rainy day is conducive to a knee slide, isn't it? And I think you're looking for distance, really. I think that that denotes the quality of the knee slide, how far you travel. And I think it's almost like curling, where you want to get <laughs> you want to get close to, but not hit the corner flag. That would be I my advice. I completely agree. They should have a player in front of them, sort of sweeping the turf, <laughs> yeah. just to make sure. I think we need to set a challenge. Actually, now, if any of the Premier League footballers are listening, and one in particular who I think the perfect man for this job is Scott McTominay. Yeah. Okay. With his Why? with his Scottish roots. Well, the Scots love a bit of curling, don't they? So oh, okay. he, he's the, okay. next time he scores, he's the he's the stone, and he needs to get somewhat. I don't know. Daniel James um, can can be the whatever the, the man with the broom. First game back at Old Trafford. That's what I want to see. And you'd you'd need someone behind him, who, to, who, you know, posing as if they'd launched the stone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Phil <So> Jones. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not sure he's got quite the. Um, I'm not sure he's got quite the sort of precision for this, but. Yeah, uh, this could be. I mean, banterous celebrations are a very hit and miss affair, but this could, this could be brilliant. Um, but it just needs a topical hook, like the Winter Olympics, which are never going to happen. The cliches pod was no stranger to controversy in 2020, though. George Culkin and Oliver Kay were embroiled in the big cliches quiz row back in June, which became known as Credit Card Gate. Before Jack Pitbrook's dramatic Christmas comeback opened up the can of football trivia worms once again. Ollie, you get to go first with question five in round four. Shirt, Premier League shirt sponsors, here is your question. Only two clubs this season 
are sponsored by something you could physically touch with your hands. Name either of them. What's Only that? two clubs oh. in the Premier League can you touch the thing that they are sponsored by with your hands. So what, am I naming the clubs or the sponsor? Uh, clubs. Just name one. One will do. Um, Manchester United with Chevrolet. George? So that's a car company, so therefore you can touch your car. Is That that seems to be what you're saying. But then if I... So if it's Etihad, then that's an airline, so you can't touch that. Is that is my theory... <laughs> is my theory correct there? Is that my no theory? Comment. Is that the theory? You're not commenting on that? No, not yet. I'm going to have to sort of slightly question this question. I mean, Brighton are sponsored by American Express, so does that mm-hmm. mean because that's a card, I can touch the card? I mean, is that your answer or is it not your answer? Well, I don't know if that's my answer. I'm, I'm try- Chevrolet isn't a car. Manchester United are not sponsored by a car. They're sponsored by a car company. I do think this would uh, apply to all, all other sponsors as well. So, Well, no, because a, bet- a betting company so, is not... A- so, so, you know... You, this you can all be addressed to- once you give your answer. Do, is, this is- could apply to yoghurts as well, in, in that it's actually the name of the yoghurt company rather than the, um, the individual Well, fine. Yogurts. But if, if... All right, if I say Brighton then and I get that wrong, I'm, I'm going to massively kick off because he's got Chevrolet... Because it's not a car, it's a car company. Etihad. What Etihad so you're, you're is, going, an, is you're an airline. American Express. Are you going with American Express? Well, I could Are go you? for Etihad. I could go with Fly Emirates, but that's not an actual plane, is it? I'm trying to work out what your answer is here. I don't know what my answer is here. I want some clarity on the rules before I proceed. <laughs> uh, come on. No, don't say come on. I want some clarity on the rules here. Uh, American Express was. Is that what you went for? Well, I'm going to say American Express then. Yeah. Okay, you're wrong. You're not, it's not American Express. American Express are a financial uh, provider. They are. I a, have an American Express card. They, that's that's not that is not the primary purpose of their existence. They could they could exist without the plastic cards. They, they, no, they, they couldn't. Provide, no, they, they couldn't. Could. No, pretty much. It. You can't essentially. You can't touch the concept of American Express. You can touch a Chevrolet, which means Ollie is correct. The only other answer you can oh, this is outrageous. My, doesn't matter. Doesn't this matter. This is outrageous. The only, the only other sponsor you could have had under my rules were Yokohama Tires of Chelsea. You can touch a tire, but you can't touch American Express. That's just it. <sighs> The referee's American decision is final. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely so furious. This is like this is like a season being determined by points per game or points per whatever. This is outrageous. I still had a chance in this quiz. I still had a chance in this, and you've you've robbed me of that chance. Part of me is sympathetic to your plight. Um, you can't touch a fun eight eight eight. You can touch an no. American Express. But there is and I'm actually quite I'm actually quite amazed that having thought about that American, for quite a long time, American I've Express named... do not exist to produce credit cards made of plastic. That is that is not their fundamental. Yes, they thing. do. No, no, they're they're a financial services company. They do all sorts of things. So they are essentially a big bank. Chevrolet right? do all sorts of things apart from make cars. Chevrolet make cars, and you can touch a car. That's it. Yeah, but they make, other th- they make other things. George, would it make you feel better if they I make trucks the points in the final round? They make they make vans. I mean, admittedly, you can touch all those things, but they're all, all different. Things. <laughs> they're all different things. Your your defence right. here is crumbling, much like your uh, much like. Do you know what else? Do you know what they also do? Right, I'm, I'm, I have looked this up on Wikipedia as we're talking. Do you know what they also do? Vehicle insurance. Can you touch that? Vehicle financing. Can you touch the prim- that? The primary point of Chevrolet's business is to manufacture cars. You can touch a car. Ollie is correct. You can't this is a sham. Touch the this is an absolute sham. This is a sham. Business. You no. are a sham. 
football <laughs> football sham. Can I, can I, I'm just going to refer the listeners back to um, George's reply when I asked him to get in this quiz. I don't know anything about football. I have no memory and I won't get a single answer right. But apart from that, okay. This was a man hugely indifferent to the football cliches quiz. And yet he's now... now Consulting the Wikipedia page for American I be- Express. I believe to call back in. A I believe point. in justice. Anyway, question three, the final question: Which phrase for a solidly hit low shot from distance shares its name with the Blue eighty two B C one thirty weapon system used by the US Air Force in Daisy the Cutter. Cutter. Daisy Cutter. I got it first. No, he didn't. Jack Pitbrook. No way. No way. No way. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. Come on. He did. Honestly. The dulcet tones of Pitbrook. There's, there's video there. There's video the there. I'm doing the VAR. There's thing, video. But Come I, on. I didn't literally uh, say we it may first. need the producers to adjudicate on this. I will do the little sign. And uh, I'm not <laughs> Adam's sure Jack running over to his pitch side monitor. Yeah. Dave or Phil, can you confirm in a dramatic final twist of the football cliches wow. quiz who said it first? I'm pretty sure it was Jack. Does it, does it go from the first D or do, or, or the, the completion of the word? It's a very good point. It's a bit like the contact <laughs> of the ball. I would say it's the commencement of the correct answer because once you've started to say the right answer, you are pretty much saying the correct answer. So whoever started saying the... Maybe Jack just said it very slowly and you leapt in there halfway through. Some would argue that it, it's, it's the I've person it who finishes the, the answer first. That's also a school of thought. Time Ollie started I, feel like, I feel like there's a conspiracy here. In the absence of confirmation from my VAR assistants, I'm going to have to declare Jack Pitbrook. No way. The new champion. <laughs> this is outrageous. Quiz. Now, if I if if I scroll back up my running order, I would I will see that uh, Ollie K once held a five one lead. If all we're way honest, through to fifteen eleven. I think Ollie's first round lead was a bit of a false position because I gifted him David Wright, having been a bit too small no, no, no. to show my thinking, yeah. and then I screwed up the referee's decision by not saying Anthony Taylor and Willie Collum. And throwing it away with Roberto Rossetti, which I knew was the name of the head of referees and not an actual active referee. So it was only my own stupidity and petulance. Yeah. Jack, like, Jack this, is, this is so fraudulent, Jack, that when you started saying, if we're honest, I thought you were actually going to be very magnanimous and say what a remarkable performance it was by me. And that the- It was great to see Jack adopt the dark arts as the quiz progressed. Dan Barnes bared his five-a-side soul for episode 25, as we all agreed that having to kick the previous players off a pitch you've booked is, relatively speaking, the worst thing a human being ever has to do. Dan, if I, if after all this time in lockdown, since we played a game of five-a-side, if I play you the following sound, just tell me what it means to you. That's opportunity, isn't it? Ringing around a, a some sort of steel enclosure, it feels like, doesn't it? I mean, I think... So as kind of Charlie's spoken about the difference between, you know, 11s and 5s, but, you know, in a professional game, when we talk about crossing that white line, I mean, I don't think it compares to crossing into that sort of steel cage or steel cauldron, you know? I mean, I think uh, yeah. the thing with 5 aside is, of course, you know, you can have lows, much, many more lows and, and bigger highs, sort of higher risk, higher reward in 11s, but in 5 aside, you know, you know that you're going to be all action and you know that... You know, you've got more chance of scoring goals. You've got more chance of being involved, but it's frenetic and frantic, isn't it? You know, you're right in the sort yeah. of pres- pressure cooker. And I feel pressure. I feel nervous even playing, you know, Sunday before a Sunday league game. That morning before, I'm a bit like, oh, you know, there's butterflies or whatever. But I've never felt butterflies playing five aside, even competitively, because it's just, uh, it's just going to be helter skelter, all action, isn't it? It's like double concentrate football, isn't it? 
And um, but that but that that, that sound, <laughs> that all the hopes and dreams in in that single sound of a, of a gate sliding open. But of course, that sound is important. That that sound has a practical use because uh, generally speaking, that sound is the is the audio signal for for a team who are currently playing or mucking around on a pitch to get off and let the other team come on. And um, Charlie, this this to me is is a very tense moment of five aside. But here are some listeners' contributions on on how we should approach this situation. I want you to give your opinion, Ross Tyson says, um, I really need some advice on politely kicking people off. Even when I know with 100% certainty that some time thieves are on my pitch, I can only ever muster a, hey guys, sorry, I think we're booked for this pitch. Um, What's your (laughs) approach here? You pray that they make the first move and they're like, oh, you guys on? And you're like, yeah, 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 if that's all right, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll come on now, yeah. Uh, if that doesn't happen, I mean, I remember we, we a guy we play with who, who is known for maybe being a little gauche, he kind of just steamed in and was quite sort of oh. like, yeah, guys, like, uh, I think you're done here, like, so get off. And it was kind of perfect because obviously we were all uh, more, a bit more reserved. It was also hilarious. It, it's just a classic British psyche thing, isn't it? We hate confrontation, <laughs> and so we, yeah, we kind of skirt around it, even though there's nothing wrong with just being like, uh, yeah, guys, you're done. <laughs> Get off. I never want to be the first person to initiate this. Uh, I'm happy to kind of back up whoever goes first. Dan, Ben McLenahan suggests a, a, a quiet times up, lads, and then you've got to make a really big noise with the door bolts. Whereas Mehdi Juma says there's simply no way to kick people politely off a court. You just have to wander on with a few of the lads, put your bags and footballs behind a goal and just walk towards the centre circle. Hmm. Subtler approaches. On both those points, uh, they're both sort of uh, tried and tested uh, tactics, aren't they? One thing I would say is time's up, lads, is you don't say that in any other situation, do you, apart from trying to get on the five-a-side <laughs> pitch that you've paid for. Um, but or as kicking well, someone yeah. out, of a, out of a pub, I suppose. I suppose, yeah, I suppose. But has, have you ever experienced anyone say time's up, lads, and actually look at the other team? I also hear it said <laughs> staring at the ground or oh, talking completely. to your mates. It's never, you know, it's not, you, we obviously hate the awkwardness, don't we? But any, and all these situations, you know, you need, it's impossible even, even if you're, you know, as, as with you normally find with five aside, you know, you might be the first person who's there on time. Um, but you need, you need a group. You need to be at least five <laughs> or six. So you don't look like, cause you know, you need to be ready to play, don't you? Like if you kick a team off, you're going to be embarrassed if you're actually just having a little bit of a warm up or just taking a few shots, that kind of thing. You know, you need a big team with you, whether you're obviously going with the times up lads or, you know, the more sort of passive aggressive of, you know, warming up in the corner of the pitch whilst the game's still going on, or chicken chucking your bags behind the goal. When they don't goal, notice, you know? when they don't yeah. notice you're there, that, that's they, even worse because then you're just prolonging the awkwardness. Um, we, we've the, got the some, pub actually. The, yeah. the pub is a good analogy because I think the only the equivalent for me of awkwardness is if if you have like a birthday drinks in a pub and you've got like a table reserved and not oh. enough people are there yet, so you kind of got to be like, oh, guys, just say like, absolutely fine for you to sit there for now, but there will be people <laughs> coming. So like, you know, just, just you know, just just wanted to flag that. That they were, it's like yeah, but we're right here now. Absolutely fine oh. there now. Yep, just say it's like, uh, oh, and, just, and, and like like Dan says, you don't have quite enough of you there to start putting the pressure on. Uh, it's the same we, thing, you know. You might be the best five aside player ever, and you know you've got every right to activate your calves, you know. But <laughs> but if you haven't got a group of people behind you, it's not going to work. Towards the braver end of the spectrum here, Arjun Gole says um, a simple sorry. I think we've got this pitch booked, which which sounds a little bit too apologetic for me. But he says he has a zero tolerance policy for next goal wins. So that's he's drawing the line there. Uh, finally, Thomas Carter kind of agrees with you, Dan. You need to wait till you have a critical mass of your own group. 
uh, so you, so a, a good solid number of you before you can actually impose yourself on the uh, on the pitch. But never entertain the possibility of an admin error like double booking. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see that this 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 clearly affects a lot of people, and and we've had a lot of responses for different ways of doing it. But it, be bold is the uh, is the way to do it. Listener L suggests some very niche hang-ups about Office 5 aside. Uh, first of all, not knowing the names of your teammates, so having to use yep over and over again. Because <laughs> like, yep, I think I understand what he means. Yep is basically the universal symbol, for, universal kind of language for I'm here, pass the ball to me, or, or I'll pass it to you. It's just a very useful phrase. And then secondly, he says, agonising over whether to change at the office or the venue itself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're an office uh, changer, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I am. I am, and it's just the sort of dressing room situation with your. Uh, if you're doing it on with your Sunday <laughs> team, and it's a bunch of guys, you don't work with them, do you? So if you want to walk around naked, or you know, or you know, that is fine. But not the. You spend more time with your work colleagues. You know, they're the people you're forced to, work, to be with. Aren't you're you? used so to you... seeing them fully clothed. In a, exactly, in a I'm used atmosphere. to seeing exactly used to seeing don't all of you. Take fully my clothed. shirt off in front of them. Absolutely. But no, exactly. I think it's kind of like it's like mutually assured destruction. Like if you all do it, then it's like right. <laughs> Okay, well, he knows I've got that. I know he's got that. It's all fine. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think you, you're just it's all in it together. It's nothing specifically. It's just the general, general, general feeling. Yeah. Of course, not knowing your teammates. Whenever you do play with, say, even if it's just one of those, I mean, it's one of those non-competitive five-a-sides where you just play amongst each other. So a mate says, oh, a mate from work says, do you want to play with my mates, you know, my local mates? Fine. Um, this is Jamie, Jim. Steve and Sean, <laughs> you you don't know any of their na- names, do you? You might know who who's wearing the Arsenal shirt, maybe, but that's about it. You don't know anyone's name, and it'll take a long time. There's just there's just no no hope, is there? Having about half a dozen names fired at you before you're making your debut in pretty much any footballing context is is just basically the most useless way of getting to learn names ever. Because I am not thinking about who these people are. I'm thinking about what they think of me and what I'm going to do for the next half an hour. I don't care what their names are. I'm never going to remember. So basically, here are and yep. My thing as well, when I'm introduced to anyone, my main focus is on getting the handshake right or getting that sort of thing right. So I'm not taking their names at all. It's just like, right, just yeah. don't mess up the handshake or the embrace. And then I'm like, oh, I did not take in their name at all. The only opportunity you have to ascertain, like get a second bite of the learning people's names cherry is when you go in goal and you, get, and you, and you sort of lean over and go, what's your name again? And then yeah. you, you, you've got to find out your, you, you your defence's names because that's hugely important. But you can, and, then, and then even then you never use them. So, oh, but then, of course, you, you have this, I mean, it, it goes on and on this dilemma because you might end up spending a whole hour calling someone a completely wrong name and then you find oh. out what they're actually called and it's just crushing, I mean, crushing realisation yeah. that you've got their name. My, toe, my toes are curling, my toes are curling. And obviously, as you just said there, what's your name again? You can only say that in your first game. If you turn up the second week and you don't remember that name, obviously, it's just horrendous, no, That makes it? you look weird. I think saying to someone else, like, oh, what's um, what's the guy in the Arsenal shirt's name? I, that's oh, sort of my, my yes. preferred, a bit more covert. Yeah. You've got to do it really quietly so they don't find out you're doing it. Oh, my yeah, exactly. Oh, God, I'm, I'm aching here. Dan, there are more sort of heartwarming interactions with members of the public when you're playing Father's Side. Um, take, for example, when you kick the ball over the fence. Oh, gosh. Uh, and that results in this this kind of ensuing pantomime because you never know. I mean, you, you always assume that there's going to be a passerby and then you're just hoping that they're of a decent calibre that they can get the ball back over the fence. <laughs> um, and then, so whoever it is, this, this passerby X, and they're walking up to the ball and you just think, don't kick it. Please oh, do not yeah. attempt to kick it either from your hands or from the ground, and then and then when that when they are in the process of throwing it over, hopefully underarm, 
<laughs> I, I, I don't think there's a more thanked person in the world than the person who throws the ball back <laughs> over the fence. Everyone thanks them. I love that because I look around now and I think everybody's going to do it. Everybody's going to say, thanks, cheers. Yep, cheers, thanks. Cheers, cheers thanks. thank you. Thanks very much. Aww. Cheers, thank you. It's, that's a nice... That's a, uh, uh, that must feel amazing because I've never been in that position. I can't remember the last time I was in the position of being the guy who throws the ball back over the fence, Dan. How nice must that feel? <laughs> it must feel nice. It must feel nice. I do wonder if... Um, the creators or let's say the architects of five-a-side pitches, whether it be like a goals or just one with two pitches together, whether they, you know, I understand that say, for example, say you've got, you know, a dividing wall between two pitches and a netting oh, roof, yeah. and there's just a little gap, but to, to throw a ball or kick a ball first time through that gap, you need sort of the precision <laughs> of, uh, you know, an elite snooker player or, you know, you need to be an elite athlete really to get it through there first time. And, you know, the feeling of, obviously it's great when, you know, a ball goes over onto another pitch. Say, for example, a ball goes over to another pitch and the other game is still going. It's not like the Premier League mm. where it's like, whoa, 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 come on, drop ball, drop ball, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. they'll keep playing. You're just like, uh, come on, uh, excuse me, uh, come on. Um, but when they do finally get to throw it over, there's no worse feeling than if they throw it over and it hits the fence and they have to do it again. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, listener Bobby Dickinson shares your agony. He says it's the biggest agony by fives. It's the pressure of the ball from a neighbouring pitch landing on yours. And you being the one who has to kick it back over with two sets of players watching and hoping you can't do it first time. Um, so there's an element of kind of inherent um, kind of piss taking already there before you've even kicked <laughs> the ball. Uh, Ross Tyson replies saying, this is horrible because you can't you can't look like you're trying too hard, even though kicking a ball vertically 20 feet with enough power to land on another pitch without <laughs> missing isn't easy. While we are obsessing ourselves with, with technical details, where do you stand on keeping score? Because this seems quite a divisive issue. Are you a actual scorekeeper? Do you only keep the relative scores? That is one up, two up. What's, what's the situation here? Or do you just not keep score at all? Oh, you have to keep score. Otherwise, what's the point in playing? But it's so, it's so, it's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I think I'm quite anal and would, would prefer to keep a score, even if, you know, a, a lot of five-a-side games end up being sort of 13-12 or something like that, because, you know, I want a marker of how much effort we've put in. But unless you've got one of these, you know, <laughs> these young kids who, as a referee and you're playing in a competitive <laughs> game, who's sort of moping around at the floor and is just like, oh, yeah, lads, it's 11-10. Uh, uh, you know, it's hard, <laughs> obviously, in a, when, when you're sort of self-policing yourselves to, uh, mm. you know, you will always say, oh, what's the score? And as soon as you, you, you know in, you know, your heart of hearts that it's 15-14, but somebody like, oh, yeah, we're level. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're one goal up. And then no, Dan starts a whole, no, you're not. And then, and uh, yes, you are. And then all that argument. But I love the debate. I love that. I, yeah. I, I am a staunch scorekeeper. I, I, I won't have this sort of relative score nonsense going on. I want to know the actual score of the game. And so, Charlie, when we, when you, uh, I mean, as much as I admit I can't remember five people's names when I've only just met them for a five-side game, I, I'm pretty sure I can keep score of a football game. But about halfway through and it becomes apparent that no one really knows what the score is, the, the debate essentially goes, well, you scored two just then, then he got that one, mm -hmm. remember? And then um, it's, um, it's like a courtroom. It's wonderful stuff. I'm a big fan of the faux breezy reminding of what the score is. So, you know, you'll be like, and yeah, still, still 3-1. Oh, yeah, still 3-1. Yeah. Just, you know, because if you're worried that maybe the score isn't going to be remembered, you're just checking it out there, you know, but, but you're chilled. You're, you're not you're not caught up about it, but it is but it's still 3-1. Yeah, still 3-1. But you've opened up a can of worms for yourself there because by at what margin in a casual office five-a-side game should you stop doing that because you might really piss someone else off? I'm, I'm thinking maybe five. <laughs> 
five or six. Yeah, in an office game, I'd be wearing of doing that at all. But if if you're in a semi-serious game and and you have suspicions that maybe there are going to be those courtroom debates, you just put it out there and uh... <laughs> just put it out there. <laughs> Let three them one. know you're there. Three one. Yeah. <laughs> the responses to this sort of became more increasingly alarming. Trey the Blade says, um, we don't play in the league anymore, but if one team is 5-4 up, we'd say the score is 1-0. That's weird. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> Jefferson Lake, which is a great name, and I hope his suggestion is equally great. He says, everyone totally exhausted and not caring at the 55-minute mark when somebody just simply calls it first to three. Uh, I feel like when you do that, you have to you have to factor in the uselessness of everyone like scoring a goal when they need to. So if you've got five minutes left, three is too much. I think maybe yeah. two maximum. So there's a system there that you, you have to work out pretty quickly. And at the extreme end of this scale, Dan, we've got Jack who says, we break our games up into sets of five. When it goes to 5-3, say, it becomes 1-0 in sets and the scores restart at 0-0. Most sets at the end wins it. Works well. What? What? What is That's that? fascinating. You're I'm not, really intrigued by that. I've never heard... And someone just replied on Twitter saying, what? this isn't tennis, mate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's very tennis-based. Why would you do this? Why would you ever do that? The, the so, ATP is a Fibonacci you know, sequence for working out the score of a football game. I don't get it. Well, oh, I guess oh, you're, you're, keeping it, you're keeping it competitive. If a team, you know, there are more oh, right. instances in which you're going to have a chance to win. So, yeah, we, so, we may have... 5-0 is only one. We get, we're still right in this. Oh, I suppose... I suppose I may be, because otherwise, if you, I, if you go 5-0 down early on... Here. Yeah. If you go down, otherwise you go five down early on. It's going to be really hard. Whereas that's just yeah. one. Well, that's one set. Put that out of my mind. I, I'm changing my mind here because maybe he, maybe Jack is is proposing a solution to the kind of perennial problem here of when you get unbalanced teams that you didn't realise were unbalanced, and then you've got that awkward moment where someone says, "Well, do you want to change it?" Yeah. And 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 there are there are two types of people who say, "Do you want to change it?" You've got the person on the winning team who says, who sort of charitably says, "Well, we can change it if you like," and because obviously that's the worst thing that anyone could ever say to you. If you're losing by like five or six goals after twenty minutes, it's like, "Come on." This is fucking ridiculous. Can we please change it? Maybe Jack's suggestion completely mitigates against this because essentially you just have loads of mini games where no one can really get thrashed. It could do. And what I find really funny about that rearranging the teams is then it's really awkward when you're very much exposing who you think is worse. Where, where, you, know, oh. you, you, make a couple of, you make a couple of transfers and you're sort of openly humiliating. Like, yeah, you, you go on the winning team. Come on. And, yeah, and Dan, really it doesn't matter if, if the game gets evened out by it because you will always ruin one person's afternoon and that's the person who has to change teams. Where, how, what kind of emotional state are you going to go home in if you, if you were 5-0 up at one stage and then you had to switch teams and then kind of drew? I just, uh, what, that's that's going to leave you pretty unfulfilled, right? It is, it is. You sort of knew that you, were, you, knew that you weren't sort of too integral to that original winning team success, were you? you know? <laughs> I mean, goodness, it's just... Oh, it's, it's, I understand it's like it. moving I mean, teams after a season. Do you get a league title winner's medal? I just... Uh, oh, no, no, just not. It's just not nice, is it? No. European football expert James Horncastle and Europa League connoisseur James Moore were in the house for episode 29 to discuss the death of the crack East European outfit and help me compile the most Champions league group imaginable. I think it's important here that we construct the most Champions League Champions League group possible. <laughs> uh, I will, I'll offer you a suggestion for one of our listeners straight away. In fact, it's Karl Anker of The Athletic. He uh-huh. suggests Porto, Galatasaray, Leverkusen and Roma for that Champions League group that no one pays attention to until sides bizarrely have nine points each at the end. Yeah, that is known as the competitive balance group because it ensures that... Yeah, I feel like that that's a, a subcategory of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I want a, uh, a cross-section 
the perfect cross-section of the Champions League group hit me. Well, I also think Manchester United always seem to get a group that you know, raises a few eyebrows. So I, I've, I've put together my kind of classic Manchester United Champions <laughs> okay. League group, if you want. Okay. So yep. it's obviously United as the top seeds, um, then Lille, uh, yeah. Basel, and and, and, <laughs> and one of Olympiacos or late 90s Rosenborg. Um, oh, I do like that. Lovely. Mixing mixing your eras there, which I think taints the effort there. But three out of four was superb there. I, I guess you could go the Olympiacos. I feel a bit more Arsenal-y. James uh, James Moore, where do you sit on this one? Give me give me your four. Well, I mean, if I was going to do a Manchester United group, I would definitely have Sturm Graz in there. One hundred percent. I feel like Manchester United played them every year in the nineties, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, the Arnold Schwarzenegger arena. Exactly. Um, if I was doing a sort of a, a, a cliched group, it would have to have Leon, Leon in it as well. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Leon were just everywhere you looked like 10 years ago for five or six years. They were they were just everywhere. Mm. So, yeah, let's have Sturm Graz, Leon. Oh, I think we need to have someone Eastern European, don't we? I don't want to mention Shakhtar again. I feel like I'm all Shakhtar out now. Yeah. Who else can we have? Actually, Dynamo Kiev. I, there was a, there okay. was a point in the mid nineties. Dynamo Kiev would, is quite nice. I would throw in a Victoria Pilsen or a a Batty Borisov. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Let me. I love Batty Borisov. Actually, I like them. Um, our, our listeners have thought thought deeply about this. Ethan Henson suggests Juventus, Porto, Celtic, and Ludogorets, which is pretty good call. <laughs> Although. On the other hand, I just don't see Juventus and Porto playing each other. It's just not in my brain. I don't see them on the same pitch at the same time. So, not quite. Stephen McClay, he's put a lot of thought into this. Typical Champions League groups must contain a former winner, Barcelona or Porto, a club who you think have won it but actually haven't, Bayer Leverkusen, Paris Saint-Germain, a club with delusions of grandeur, Celtic or Angie Makachkala, and a former <laughs> Eastern Bloc club, Karabag or Dynamo Kiev. So if you pick that apart, you could go with Barcelona, Leverkusen, Celtic, and Carabag. That would be good. Celtic yeah. and Barcelona belong together in the in the Champions League at some point. I feel like <laughs> I feel like they've had a war of attrition at the new camp on average once every four years. So they're in there. Yeah. I literally hmm. just closed my there. eyes and saw Neil Lennon. Episode 35 was all about the 3 to 5pm ritual that is Soccer Saturday, including the definitive formula for working out your roving football reporter name. The real stars of Soccer Saturday, to me, are the kind of platoon of roving reporters they've got, which which all, and they're a bit like referees, they all seem to have kind of uniquely football-y names, all made up of elements that are actually seen quite every day and not surprising at all. So your Dave Bracegirdles, your John Gwynns, your Tony Incenzos, um, they're the real heroes <laughs> of this production. Yes, not the original Dickie Davis. He's always a lot younger than I expect him to be. Those guys are great because, again, they bring that kind of like, just like local enthusiasm to it. I, I really like Neil Mellor as well. Yeah. A rare former footballer on the show. Um, Dominic Cork, the former England cricketer, is sometimes what? seen, I think, what? at games. I'm sure I've seen Dominic Cork at a game on that. I've definitely seen Dominic it, Cork do bits. Is it definitely the... the, the, the it's definitely him. It's not just a bloke called Dominic Cork, yeah. which is, again, a relevant No, 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 it's definitely name. Dominic Cork. Hmm. I might have got this completely wrong, but I'm sure I've seen him. I've definitely seen him do Deadline Day for Sky Sports News. Oh, no, you're right. Like yes, of course. Stoke yes. City or Derby or somewhere. And I'm I don't sure know why it's surprising. Game. Yeah, I don't know why it's surprising. He's perfectly allowed to report on football. Charlie, I'd really like to get into the nuts and bolts of some of these names because they are perfectly football-y names. Uh, Simon Woolmer writes in and says, uh, I'd like to know what Jonathan Beals does when he's not describing the opposition's fourth goal at Roots Hall every other week. Again, 
they are they do sound like normal names but they're also just very soccer saturday reportery names uh, perhaps all three of us do have kind of soccer saturday roving reportery kind of names i can imagine goal at the city ground charlie eccleshare which way has it gone jack pitt brook perhaps reporting from let's say swansea the rico yeah, oh yeah, we should be getting stadium names in here. You're absolutely right. Uh, I wasn't sure what reception we would have to this, but I put it out there. I asked our listeners to suggest some roving reportery names. Uh, the Athletics' Dan Barnes says, we've got another goal at Deepdale, but which way has it gone? Gary Horsewhistle. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. Um, Very seems to The Medeski seems to pop up all the time here. Tim Bill says, we told you it was end-to-end at the Medeski. Paul Bletchard... Or is it Bletchard? <laughs> Paul Bletchard. Tell us, tell us what's happened now. Paul Bletchard, Bletchard is a very good... Yeah. Jack, Michael Clapham writes in, and he himself sounds like a Soccer Saturday roving reporter. He says it's over to Simon Fowler at the Medeski, and Becky Staunton has news of a fracas brewing <laughs> at Meadow Lane. Becky Staunton is very Soccer Saturday. It's kind of like sort of warm kind of abbreviation of normal first name followed by a name that vaguely recalls the former footballer. I think that's the kind of territory you have to get into. But would you like to hear your Soccer Saturday roving reporter names? I'd love to. Yeah. Okay, Charlie, here's the formula. It's your mum or dad's first name. You can choose. And then the first part of the surname is the last item you bought for your house plus the last syllable of your surname. <laughs> God, I think that would be William Hammershare. <laughs> Willie Hammershare. <laughs> yeah, Willie makes Will- it. That's really good. <laughs> Yeah. Goal at the Rico, Willie Hammershare, which way is it gone? Uh, Jack, let's hit me with it. Okay, um, so I'm going to go for uh, John Tupperware Brook, which actually sounds like uh, both like also, it sounds like simultaneously both totally implausible, but also too similar to my actual name. <laughs> John Tupperware Brook. I can see uh, John Tupperware Brook being asked for because he sounds too American. He sounds too American to be. It's just too yeah, many that's syllables the danger. too long. Yeah. It doesn't work. Maybe if I'd said like fr- I don't know frying pan Brook, that's even worse. <laughs> I, feel like I, I feel like I can't deliver good content for this segment. I think my John really my, my name and my uh, boring household purchases have just kind of sunk it. Yeah, you you, you buy too many polysyllabic items for your house that's the lesson here uh, mine was simply chris carpentry mm. um, which i'm pretty happy with maybe maybe chris he sounds more like a yeah. take that away embrace it but I, th- I think I think the winner there was Gary Horsewhistle, so well done to Dan Barnes. For episode 38, the athletic soccer man Pablo Mara went head-to-head with Rory Smith of the New York Times in a penalty shootout to finish, once and for all, the cultural footballing tensions between the UK and the US. I want to end on a lighter note. We're going to have essentially a penalty shootout between you. Pablo, I'm going to offer you some teams from the preliminary round of the FA Cup this season and Rory you're going to be taking defunct US soccer teams okay and uh, all you have to do is tell me whether they're true or false Pablo you will go first all right let's go corn 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 uh can you spell it please (laughs) q-u-o-r-n uh I'm gonna say real uh, yeah, correct. They exist, and they are indeed. The town is indeed the inspiration for the meat substitute product. <laughs> right, okay. Um, I was wondering. Uh, Rory, okay, you're one nil mm-hmm. down already. I know. First one for you: the Tulsa Turbulence. Fake. It is indeed fake. One one. Yeah, that was that was one abstract noun too far, perhaps. <laughs> um, okay, Pablo, here's your second one: Lester Nirvana. Lester Nirvana. Um... I'm just going to say real. I'm just going to say real. 
Yeah, it is. It's real. Um, I've got nothing more to add to that. It was FC Nirvana and they merged with someone else from Leicester and, and, and that's where we got to. Oh, well, 100% so far. Rory, here we go again. The El Paso enthusiasm. The El Paso enthusiasm. Uh, fake. It is fake. 2-2. Two, two. It's not quite, that's not quite it's as... not bombastic enough, like, is it? The, yeah. in, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, don't analyse my thought process for some of the questions. That's not what you're here for. <laughs> Just answer the questions. Pablo, number three, Melchester Rovers. You know, that one sounds real, so I'm just going to say fake. Yeah, it is. Ah, oh, yes. Well, I mean, fake Mel- in one Is Melchester sense. at least a real place? No, it's, it's not. It's, it's a fictional <laughs> football team for whom Roy of the Rovers played an inordinate number of games in a comic um, over the last four decades. But uh, strictly speaking, they're not real. So that's 3-2 to you. Rory, you can level it up. Uh, the Buffalo Phillies... And uh, I should point out, this is two Fs in Phillies. Two Fs. Two Fs. The Buffalo Phillies. <laughs> that has to be real. Yeah, it's real. Um, a bit of background here. Um, the team name was conceived as an equine homage to the Buffalo Stallions, who, are, who I understand were the men's equivalent. The two Fs were introduced to ward off accusations of sexism and in an attempt to make the name more memorable. <laughs> so that's why. What era? Uh, what era is this? Sorry, it's like 60s, 70s, 80s or what? Uh, I think they were around for one season in the mid nineties. Okay. A lot of these, a lot of these teams, um, at least the real ones, pretty much existed for about twelve months. Yeah. Anyway, it's three all. Nothing. Nobody is giving an inch here. Um, Pablo, number four for you. Coventry Sphinx. <laughs> uh, real, real. Yeah, yeah, it's real. I don't know what the inspiration is, but it's real. Egyptian tie-in and Coventry, I guess. Yeah, so some, some, you know, a cynical attempt to break the lucrative Egyptian market. I'm not sure. Um, uh, Rory, number four for you. The Myrtle Beach Sea Dogs. That's S-E-A-D-A-W-G-S. The normal spelling of Sea Dog. Yep, that's fine. Real. Yeah, they are real. Um, uh, Little backstory here. Laura Davis, the golfer, played Mm -hmm. once. For the Myrtle Beach Sea Dogs, I think it was the uh, the lowly USL Division Three back in 1997, and she played for six minutes against Tim Howard. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and uh, so so if you go onto a Wikipedia page, her football career is actually listed <laughs> underneath her golf career. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favourite footballing stories. Women's golfer Laura Davis playing for the Myrtle Beach Sea Dogs. Anyway, it's for all. Number five, Pablo, the Renford Rejects. Oh. I mean, it sounds fake, but it sounds like a fake one you would have met. It's real. No, it's fake. The Renford Rejects was a mid-ranking children's TV show uh, in the mid to late 1990s. And so they're not real. So this is the, to win it. Yeah, here we go. This is, this is, this is is it. This is the entire cultural debate over football and soccer comes down to this this attempt. I'm going to take a really long. I'm going to take a really long run up, but have a time limit. <laughs> <laughs> the Finger Lakes Heartbreakers. Please be real. <laughs> the Finger Lakes are definitely a place. Fake. No, they're real. Oh. Finger Lakes Heartbreakers. I can't believe you. I can't believe you've you've made me continue this quiz <laughs> even longer. Do you have uh, tie-breaking questions now, or not? oh, we've got loads more. I've got like <laughs> yeah. fifteen. Don't worry. Okay, on, on we go into sudden death. Uh, Pablo Shipshed Dynamo. Real. 
Yeah, they're real. Uh, their home ground is located on Butthole Lane. What? <laughs> no, stop it. That's where their stadium is, Butthole Lane. Uh, yep, so that's 5-4. Rory. Mm-hmm. I'm, t- I'm still tense. The Kalamazoo Outrage. Kalamazoo sounds it's more likely to be in Australia. Mm. Uh, I'm going to say fake. They are real. No, really? Yep, yeah, that's it. Oh. So, 1950, 1993, <laughs> 2020, three huge embarrassments. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks versus Yanks all over again. It really is, isn't it? Whether it's office managers or taxi drivers, the art of footballing small talk is a painful but necessary skill. Nick Miller and Neil Rigg join me for episode 41 to help you navigate through the most excruciating football conversation of all. Um, <laughs> there was always that sort of sprinkling of, of self-deprecation, Neil. I mean, almost yeah. regardless of who it is they support, yeah. I mean, they could say, yeah, well, I'm actually, I, I'm an Ipswich fan, actually, or I'm, I'm a Fulham fan, or I'm a Sheffield United fan, actually, for my sins. I will happily sit here in front of my microphone and say, I have never said for my <laughs> sins when I tell people who I support. Adam, I've got my note here and written right in front of me, three words, for my sins. It could be <laughs> Droylston, it could be Cruyff yeah. era Barcelona, it doesn't matter who it is. <laughs> for my sins is the, the obligatory suffix to, the, to that question. I think it's the uh, ultimate footballing small talk. I, I just, yeah. That is the motto for pretty much everything we're going to discuss today. Yeah, very, or, absolutely. Or alternatively, uh, saying, look, someone has to. Someone's <laughs> got to support this lot, this rabble. It seems to be the, the default option for all football fans, apart from Manchester United fans in the 90s, to kind of go, oh, well, you know, we're we're rubbish, aren't we? You know, it yeah. only, happens, only happens to X oh, team, you know. Yeah. There's a glamour and a lack of success, isn't there? No one really respects you if you're going to see someone who's just won the league. There's a real sort of... Uh, you know, brownie points to be had by saying you've, you support someone who haven't touched a quarter final in fifty years or something like that. And this is another point. I mean, I mean, when that answer is given, then then there's this kind of moment of deliberation about ab- mm. about what that means about that person. I mean, and specifically for lower league or even non-league teams, if I ask someone who they support and they say, "Well, I'm actually a, I'm a Port Vale fan, actually, or uh, <laughs> I follow Northampton," and and your response, or, or at least my response, at least instinctively, was always, "Oh right." It's as if they've just told me their parents are divorced, or as as um, Kingstonian fan Zonal Marking put it, it's as if I've just told them I've given up my job in the city to work as a teacher in an inner city comprehensive. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, you're doing good good for the world. There is this kind of weird kind of kudos that goes with being a lower league fan, uh, Neil. Yeah, there's a there's a dynamic shift in the conversation when that happens as well yes. because if someone tells me they're a Premier League supporter, obviously my my day job is, is dealing almost exclusively in the Premier League. I can hold my own in any kind of conversation. It doesn't matter if it's <laughs> Burnley, Arsenal, whoever. If someone tells me they support yeah Mattlesfield, then all of a sudden yeah my reflex action uh, mm. first is to say the nickname of the club for some reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, someone say who do you support Southend? Ah, the Shrimpers. Yeah. <laughs> Is that impressing anybody? But I don't know. Um, is, yeah, and then, is that and swiftly then, followed by? Uh, do you get down to? Uh, do you get down to Ritz or much? <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then the third part of that is to desperately try and remember anything about the club. What I've seen on, on Quest on Saturday, the two-minute highlight package, and um, stuff I can remember from the Rothmans football yearbook in the nineties. But this um, is healthy, yeah. though, because that, that's you're giving and receiving with that knowledge. Because you, you know you're offering them something, and, and you, there's some self satisfaction at the same time. Surely, 
but there's also yeah a kind of um an inferiority complex that develops within me within that conversation and that i i know i'm already floundering for something relevant and not dated and mm. i think i've become the kind of fairweather fan that, that i hate in those kind of conversations so yeah. I can see from the other person's response that they don't know, that they know I am got a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I'm trying to, it's a bit like me entering into music chat or, you know, talking about yeah, cricket. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of level of knowledge, really. It's about finding that sweet spot between the person who doesn't know so much uh, about the thing that the other person knows loads about, I guess. That's yeah. the art of conversation generally. But this <laughs> is where football yeah. small talk kind of serves a good function, Nick. And cliches generally, because they are they are designed to kind of lubricate this conversation between someone who might know loads about it. But I don't think it always works that way. Comedian Ivo Graham was one of our first star guests for Mesut Harland Dicks. And for episode 45, he helped us wade through the Ofcom minefield that is swearing during live TV games. This has been bubbling along for quite a while during behind closed doors football, James. Um, It's swearing during live TV football games. Now, we're not here to discuss the technical aspects of it. Um, Commentators have to apologise for this. This is is Ofcom and and this is the way it has to be. But I feel like it's reached its peak now. Um, This is this is from uh, the weekend. This is Kevin De Bruyne versus linesman Darren Can. Look at where the line is. Look where the fucking line is. He's manning ten yards, De Bruyne. So now there's what felt like. I mean, the main thing I'd say about that is that the linesman, you can clearly hear say that it's a circle, but we know it's not a circle, is it? It's a quadrant. And if there's one bit of geometry you want uh, a referee's assistant to know, it's what a quadrant is. He sounds a really linesman-y voice. But... It was just a very long wait for the apology. I, I timed it about 24 seconds and it just felt like an eternity. Which gives us a chance to apologise if you picked up any inappropriate language. If you're watching without augmented effects, you would probably have heard a word you shouldn't have. Sorry for that. I also, I don't really understand why Darren Can felt necessary to point out that it was a circle. Because it being a circle makes it even more likely that Stephen Bergvine was actually too close. Unless he thinks it's some sort of inverted... Like convex affair. We're not here to talk about quadrants. In which case, fine. We're not here to talk about quadrants. Fine. We're here to talk about swearing on live TV football games. And um, Ivo, that was that was delicious swearing, wasn't it? I think I find it very difficult um, to think of players being both uh, cultured in the way that De Bruyne is, and also mouthy. It's such a incredibly yeah. sort of lazy stereotyping and association of, you know, if 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 you've got a fantastic eye for a crossfield pass, um, then you've never sworn in your life. But there's something particularly in Congress about De Bruyne. I find, um, I was glad of the apology whenever it came. James, actually, I, I'm I'm not sure about that. I think De Bruyne strikes me as the the most irritable footballer in the currently applying his trade in the Premier League. He just, it's not quite brattishness. He just seems constantly annoyed. Yeah, he does look, he does look like like constantly incredulous, doesn't he? Like that there is always something that has just annoyed him in the past 30 seconds. It's not some lingering major yeah. issue. It's always something very minor that's happened very recently. He just seems constantly on the verge of saying, you're not my real mum and dad. <laughs> After that sort of slightly awkward um, swearing on live football, TV incident um, swiftly after that. And in both cases, this was Sky commentator Rob Hawthorne, who who I felt dealt quite manfully with both situations. During the Wolves versus Southampton game on, on Monday night, uh, this was a rather more textbook apology. This is exactly how apologies for swearing during live football should go. Apologies there, by the way, if you heard some uh, industrial language. Um, crucial technical point here, Ivo, is that 
you, you, you get the sense that they're just thinking, oh, do I really have to do this? So th- there's always that very, very interesting pause halfway through where they go, sorry for the uh, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, industrial language you may have heard. That, that, that pause is crucial to the apology for swearing on live football TV. It distances the commentator, not just from the swear word <laughs> itself, but from the entire class of character who would, who would issue such, such industry. Listener Brendan Hodrian um, writes in James and says, if a game kicks off before the watershed, but someone tells an official to fuck off after the watershed, should there still be an apology? I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I, It's like very philosophical, isn't it? Yeah, that is. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I imagine probably, it doesn't seem like the watershed is a particularly integral element of this. Uh, ruling is it and it just seems to be whatever is said they have to apologize for whenever it is regardless of how ludicrous yeah it doesn't seem to respect the watershed whatsoever but then you never hear swearing on match of the day so i i I really don't know where football stands on this next up ellis james was on the pod to get various things off his chest including the enduring cliches of the anfield crowd and that generic crowd noise that's been used in every single football advert for the last 30 years trust me when you hear it you'll know what he means unlike everyone else who isn't a Liverpool fan, I find the cliches surrounding Anfield, the Anfield experience, Liverpool supporters in particular, mm. absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and I, I, I love it. And I love that it's every commentator's go-to. I find it fascinating that these cliches don't seem to... Uh, they're not seemingly relevant for fans of other clubs. So I've never heard of... Arsenal fans being um, described as particularly knowledgeable here at the Emirates. So it'd be a cr- in this part of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah they this. love their football. They love their football up here in North London. They you love- just wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's definitely like a religion here thing. in North London. Being surprised that they like their football yeah. more than average in a provincial part of the UK is definitely a thing. I love and, it, and and is is pointless to say. Of course, they love their football. They're there. Why wouldn't they be there? Yeah. But then they're not passive consumers. Oh, they're very passive consumers of football here in this part of North London. <laughs> Look at that guy over there on his phone. Yeah. But in, Ellie- in this part of the country, it's nothing like a religion. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a religion. It's just. Yeah. Um, just but, they just follow a sport. But Ellis, in, in defence of these cliches and, and in defence of those who, who bear them out, you have to earn this status, right? You, yeah. you don't. You just. You don't earn the. I mean, the cop, for example, don't earn this. Um, kind of fabled act of sucking the ball in sucking from nowhere, the ball right? In. <laughs> we need to you don't talk have about that stadium MK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. They, uh, yeah, they, 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 they don't do that at the Reebok, do they? They don't suck the no. ball in at the Reebok. But maybe there's, maybe there is some science here, though, because I mean, the cop holds in in its current form, it holds about twelve thousand people. If they all inhaled forcibly at the same time at the very most opportune moment of the ball being in their vicinity, do you think it would have any effect whatsoever? I don't, I don't think, think anyone's ever tried it. I reckon you'd move the ball about as much as it moved prior to Gary McAllister's penalty at Euro 96. <laughs> mm. That would be enough. Another Yuri Geller. That would be Another enough. thing Yuri Geller I reckon 12,000 sucks you could move. <laughs> you could move a Premier League issue football, a standard Premier League match ball Maybe an inch, maybe an inch and a half. Twelve thousand sucks. That is, that is the start of a great headline about the inside story of how the cop um, made the ball go <laughs> in unexpectedly. Do you know what? When when you when I watched us um, Liverpool versus Barcelona, the four nil, 
a famous European knight. Yes. I don't doubt for one second. I can't deny that, that there was a special atmosphere in Anfield. I can't deny that. Hmm. And also, you know, obviously when you look at Liverpool's successes, particularly in the 70s and 80s, there was a special atmosphere on the field. When I think of uh, United beating Barcelona in the Cup Winners' Cup um, at Old Trafford, I think there was a special mm. atmosphere then. There have been, there have always been special atmospheres at the, at the big grounds. Yeah, Although I do remember James Lawton in the Independent once doing a match report from a Champions League game for Chelsea, and he said there are far more intimidating grounds in Europe than Stamford Bridge, but still, <laughs> fantastic opening. Yeah, it's good to be measured about these sort of things. But um, Charlie, on, on the specific point of of a knowledgeable crowd, I mean, the, the Crucible snooker definitely comes into that category. But uh, anything else? Well, the one of the biggest misnomers in sport is the Wimbledon Centre Court. <laughs> I mean, that that scrub is knowledgeable. I mean, this is a crowd who will laugh at net cords and yeah. rallies where there are consecutive slices. Like that, I, I just do not agree that that's a, an especially knowledgeable crowd. I think it's a particularly certain type of knowledge. It's like a, it's like self awareness is actually it's not knowledge of tennis. Like if you ask them who won Wimbledon in nineteen forty nine, they won't know. But it's 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 an awareness of the, everything that surrounds them at Wimbledon that makes them the knowledgeable crowd. But um, you touched on the point of things that they find inordinately funny, like uh, the equivalent of a mobile phone going off in a football press conference. But I think we should nail this list. Curious pigeons that won't go away. Yeah. Between point banter between players. Any sort of heroics by ball boys or ball girls. And then line judges not being killed by 148 mile, miles an hour serves. That is the full list of things that knowledgeable Wimbledon grounds find funny. Yeah. Umpires umpires saying things in a slightly odd way or shout, in a shouty <laughs> way, slightly panicked way, that, yes. that would always get a, I, a good titter. Cardiff Arms yeah. Park, I don't think they get it at the Millennium Stadium, now known as the Principality mm. Stadium anymore, but Cardiff Arms Park rugby crowds were often oh. described as knowledgeable. How? Why? How I does don't that know. manifest itself at a rugby game? What are they sort of politely applauding that some people might not get? Well, because that's the th- that's the crux of it, isn't it? A knowledgeable crowd, yeah, sort of spotting something that someone else might not. have It done. implies that all fifty-five thousand people at the old Cardiff Arms Park had the equivalent of a UEFA A license, whatever that is in rugby. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I've I've been to Anfield a couple of times with with Swansea, and you know I <laughs> I'm trying to imagine. A load of scousers in the in the in the, in the cop going eh, yeah what well, people don't know is that eh, an asymmetrical four four three allows for the overloads on the specific sides of the pitch. I, I just I don't I don't know if that's happening more at Anfield say than it is at Goodison. Although I don't know if you've watched the Howard's Way film about Howard Kendall's team in the mid eighties mm. and when they played Bayern Munich in the European Cup Winners Cup semi final at Goodison at half time Howard Kendall said. Uh, you get the ball in the box, lads, and the Gladys Street will suck it in. Oh. So sucking in, I don't know if it, if um, that stretches to Tramia Rovers. I don't know if it's, a, yeah. if it's an all Merseyside thing or if it's just a Liverpool thing. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never heard of the phenomenon anywhere else no. than Merseyside. So, I mean, we, we need to look into it. I mean, if, we, if we can, when, when crowds are back, if we can get the experiment sorted, I'd, I would love to see it. Ellis, uh, there was a phenomenon that you spoke to me about and you left me a three minute long WhatsApp voice note about it, in fact, but I simply couldn't find any evidence for it. So we couldn't get it into the episode. But essentially, to sum it up very briefly, this phenomenon you found in mid 90s football adverts. It's library footage 
or stock footage that uh, sound menus in the dub, as they say in the biz. So if you need the sound of a football crowd cheering a goal, mm. you'd think, oh, great, I've, I have got generic football crowd cheering a goal noise here, option A. What bothered me so much in the 90s was that it wasn't generic because you could tell that it was a very specific goal because you could hear one person distinctly above everyone else going, Yank! <laughs> and it was the fact that this one person's going, Yank! is what makes it so distinctive and this, uh, preventing it from being generic. And also you can tell that they're using the same one. And for some reason, that really, really annoyed me. Okay, so having... After you told me about this, I thought I'm going to spend the next two weeks researching this. Obviously, I didn't do that. And even if I did, I don't reckon I would have found it. But producer Phil, who has already clarified that it was indeed keeping up appearances that we were talking about earlier, has come up trumps. Let's hear it, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) I heard it. It's there. Oh, my God. I'm being reunited with a a long-lost family member. I, it's like being reunited with a really bad case of eczema. <laughs> Some, something that really annoyed me. For years, they used the same one, mm. and then it, it fell out of fashion. And now they must have another football chain. And I'm positive as well that there have been times when there's been a problem with the sound from um, from the ground, and they've actually dubbed that on to a, to a normal goal, another goal. So I don't know why this would be. I don't know... <laughs> If I'm if I'm correcting this, but I'm positive that I've watched games where they're showing that oh, we're just doing uh, the roundup from the uh, Barclays uh, Premier League, and it would be I don't know QPR versus Aston Villa, and they'd have that cheer on, and I could tell because they. <laughs> can, I, can I hear it one more? Can I hear it one more? It's time? like the Highbury Screamer, isn't it, Charlie? It's, it's kind yeah, of, yeah, <laughs> very kind of low budget version of the Highbury Screamer. Has anyone else noticed this? There he is. There he is. It, do you think it's a Who he? Who is he? Is it a he? It's a he. Yeah. Who is he? Hmm. What's his story? Track him down. Did he get? Um, did he get any royalties? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he's yeah, he's a very specific voice in there. But maybe he knew oh. they were recording it for generic advert purposes. And thought I. It's like it's like waving in the. It'd be like an extra waving in the back of I don't know, like Zulu or something like that, saying I'm going to get on this. I'm going to get in this. Yeah. And it sounds like quite a fun goal. It sounds like um, maybe the balls come back off the post or something. Mm, mm. Because it's like, oh, and then, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm absolutely mm. delighted slash, slash irritated in equal measure. It's incredible to be with that, so. that in, in the dying minutes of this podcast, after, after what feels like days of um, thinking about going to look for this thing, it has indeed popped up. Um, what a guy, producer Phil, everybody. Episode 47 was all about the obscure footballing loves and hates of Sky Sports presenter Kelly Cates. But first, we had to address one of the most pressing issues in modern football. Now, Kelly, football cliches is obviously towards the frivolous end of the podcasting spectrum, but I, I, can't, I do have a serious issue which I'd like to talk about to you at the start. Oh, God. Since right, you're okay. here and you're, you're one of the faces and voices of, of the biggest football broadcasters. And um, it's what the hell are football pundits wearing on their feet, Kelly? Yes, the Sky Sports trainers. Yes, it's incredible. Black is there like a shoe soul. cupboard at Sky Sports? <laughs> no. Do you know the best thing about it is, I've mentioned this a couple of times, and, and there are people who've taken a little bit of... Um, they, they've they've been, what's the word? Defensive about their team because <laughs> because they're all different models and they're all different mm. brands and they like to think that they are 
you know, connoisseurs of the Sky Sports mm. trainers. So they're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's not mine because mine are whatever they are and the, his are only such and such. And they all get, they, yeah, they get very competitive about it. Charlie, there is there is a there is a distinct shoe happening in punditry world, isn't there? It's it's kind of the black trainer with the very thick white sole. I mean, Sunus got involved at one point and it's like, this is yes. it. This is yep. it, it's over. I, I find the trousers quite distinctive as well. Like the the whole combo looks quite sort of TV world. Like I was at a game recently. The, the shorter trouser length, do you mean? Yeah. Mm. So I walked past mm. and, and they it just like Instantly, my eyes were dry. I can't remember who it was, but I walked past there. I think there were three of them all stood there, and it was as if they ha- they were in a kind of uniform. And my eyes were instantly drawn to it, and I thought, I've, I, I can't remember where else I would ever have seen that combo of trouser and trainer. No, it's but this this happens a lot with footballers when at, at clubs, and it ha- they they tend to like the same restaurants, or they mm. like the same clubs, or they like the same style of clothes, or you know, you get like outliers like a Hector Bellerin or whatever, but you. But they are very, um, they are pack animals. And finally, to round 2020 off on an hysterical note, the Athletics' Katie Wyatt told her story of winning a national competition to design a football mascot at the age of 12. Nick, one line in your book stood out to me, especially for what we're about to talk about with Katie. You write, because for the most part, these mascots are absurd, surreal concoctions of a dangerous mind. (laughs) Katie, which brings us neatly onto the story of Keo. Tell us. Yeah, well, when I was uh, about 11, I went to um, watch Bradford City play at Notts County and there was an advert in their programme by Kick It Out, so the anti-racism organisation, asking school children to design a mascot for them. Uh, So I drew one. Uh, I'm sure that Adam will tweet the picture later of a guy with a globe head. And had to write a little bit of an essay about what qualities I think someone who is a, a mascot for an anti-racism organisation should have. So I wrote about how he had a respect for different cultures and things like that. And then eventually they ended up ringing me, well, coming to my school actually and doing an assembly. And then Keel <laughs> leapt out from behind the curtain and they were like, oh, this is your mascot. And we've made him into a full-size mascot and you've won. And Was that the first time yeah, you'd seen him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time I saw him. Her. And then they said, you've won and mm. we're going to present him on the pitch at Wembley and you're going to go down to Wembley before the game and then unveil Keel to the... Uh, to the uh, masses, as it were. If I get this right, so Keo was a sort of humanoid creature with a, with with the with a world for yeah. a head. Is that right? If if I could if I could just relay um, a quote from you as a twelve year old um, from the from the news story in the Telegraph in Argus when your design first reached public consciousness, <laughs> you said, "I thought if it's a globe, it doesn't discriminate." <laughs> 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 I can't believe I'm so sorry to your 12 year old self and it's perfectly and it's exactly the right thing to say I'm just dying here and I'm going I'm going to get this quote out if I can help it 12 year old Katie said I thought if it's a globe it <laughs> my god I'm crying okay one more time 12 year old right one more time it's gonna be all right take a minute adam compose yourself i really hope this is worth it it's actually great okay 12 year old katie said i thought if it's a globe it doesn't discriminate against anyone because everyone is part of the globe (laughs) it's perfectly good logic 
out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> I mean, it's right. Um, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for listening to the Clichés pod so far, even the adverts for male downstairs grooming. I hope you'll join us in 2021 and a happy new year.